This is exactly right. If you're a fan of meticulously crafted worlds that reimagine every little detail, then you'll enjoy the podcast Imaginary Worlds. Host Eric Malinsky spent over a decade working in public radio and uses those skills to create a sound-rich podcast that features interviews with Andy Weir, who wrote The Martian, the writers of hit TV shows like Star Trek Strange New Worlds, designers of games like Magic the Gathering, and the puppeteer who designed Miss Piggy. You can find Imaginary Worlds wherever you're listening to this podcast. Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of I Saw What You Did. My name is Millie DeCherico. I'm Danielle Henderson. And hello, you. <laughs> Hi. What's up? Um, not much. Just in the midst of construction. It's underway. I'm so excited. They have completely cleared out the bathrooms, so I'm actually able to see the space that I'm working with now. Like, no walls. Cool. And I'm just, like, excited. Oh, I'm so excited. Yeah, just in time for the holidays, huh? You're going to yeah. have a brand new house for all the animals that are coming to your Thanksgiving dinner. I'll at least have a new bathroom. <laughs> I'm still not getting a <laughs> kitchen till December. But new bathrooms for Thanksgiving. What's up? That's all you need, as far as I'm concerned. Well, what about you? <laughs> I'm good. So I have a little confession to make. I have a crush on someone. <laughs> oh, who? Um... It's the guy that sprays for bugs at my house. <laughs> Perfect. He'll never listen to this, which is the only reason why I'm even saying it. I just, I, he'll never listen to it. You don't know that somebody named Danielle Henderson isn't going to call him and say, listen to, I saw what you did. Bye. <laughs> <laughs> he, okay. You know who he looks like? I mean, this is, it's so kind of eerie. He looks exactly like Nathan from Insecure. Oh, Do you remember that? Oh, yes. The guy from Insecure that Issa Rae, and he's the the barber, and he's from Houston. I think that's yes. like his origin story. This guy looks like him and talks like him. Oh, you're doomed. Yes. And I was like shook when he first came to the house. Basically, they come once a month and then during the summer to spray for like the summer bugs or whatever. Yeah. And then after that, they come like once every three months. And so the first guy that came over, <laughs> I don't know who is in charge of hiring at this pest control company, but like <laughs> the first guy that came over, he was kind of like an intake guy, just was like going around the perimeter of the house. Like, what's the deal? Do you have, you know, these types of bugs or whatever? He was like a Indian George Clooney. Okay. Okay. So this company is basically like, <laughs> we are actually Models, Inc. Masquerading <laughs> as a fucking pest control company. Models, Inc. <laughs> <laughs> the only the best show to ever come on television. Oh, God. Yes. This guy, the intake guy, was basically Indian. However... He looked exactly like George Clooney, like Oof. smiled like him. And I got to admit, he knew it. He knew it. He never said it to me. Mm -hmm. But you can tell that he was like, yes, I get this all the time. And I never said it to him. It was just this Man. unspoken like, listen, I know I look like George Clooney and you know I look like him. And I'm going to exactly. smile at you like every five seconds to remind you of that. He's like, my life is a porno. So, 
You don't even need to say. Every house I go to, I'm boning. Yes. Very handsome intake guy. So then the actual technician that's been coming to the house is the Nathan guy. And I'm just like, holy shit. This guy is so cute. And he's got that, like, southern draw. I mean, you know, I don't know if he's actually from Houston, but he's definitely a southern boy. And I'm just like, why do they keep sending hot bug guys to the house? <laughs> and the the craziest thing is that we might have talked about this before, just this idea of, like, a lot of times when I'm out in this world now and I see cute guys, I'm like, oh, I'm definitely at least 10 years older than them. Right. Do you know what I mean? Oh, completely. And I, listen, I have attractions to all types of men, like (laughs) old, young, whatever. Um, I mean, not too young. Let's get serious. We're not, um, we like them older, I think. We've talked about that on this podcast. We we like them crag. We like a little crag. We like a little craggy, as you know. But, you know, usually if I do see a, a guy, I just know he's younger than me because I'm like, oh, most guys running around in this world right now who are like, you know, just kind of have a... Joie de vivre. They're like 30 years old or something, or 29 or 30. The stress level is so low. Like you can, I can usually tell someone's age or that someone's much younger than me because the stress level is so low. Yes. Because they are a generation of people who have grown up so much better than we have and that they have decided to tell people no. Like I never felt comfortable doing that till I was in my 30s. Like I would never tell anybody yeah. no. And this generation of people is like, I have cramps. I'm not coming to work. I will be taking a sick day. Yes. It is a medical condition. And I'm like, damn. Like, so they are just like no lines on this face. <laughs> <laughs> they feel no obligation whatsoever. I love it. It is inspiring as shit. There's like, nope, I'm not doing that. And I'm like, damn, that generation is <laughs> fucking tight. <laughs> yes. I think the people pleasing stopped with Gen X, apparently, because everybody else is like footloose and fancy free, doesn't give a fuck. Absolutely. And yeah, th- so this guy, it's so sad. He must come to this house going, this poor sad woman who lives alone. <laughs> because, you know, he only comes in when he's doing the indoor treatment, but then when he comes once a month for the outdoor treatment, you can have him come in if you only if there's an issue. And so it's that thing where I'm like, well, I definitely want him to come in this house because I just want to keep talking to him. But then yeah. it would suggest that I have like roaches or something. And I'm <laughs> like, oh, I don't want him to think I'm disgusting. <laughs> I'm like, yes, you have to come in because there are rats in here or something. Like he's just going to be like this poor woman who has rats in her house. Okay, here's, here's two approaches. One, constantly reference the fact that you rent and be like, this ain't my shit. Yeah. Same my shit. I rent. I rent. I'm a renter. As a renter with this landlord, just constantly mention it. Constantly mention yeah. it. Also, have you tried, I need you to come inside to this vagina. <laughs> oh, sure. <laughs> but let's get serious. You know, if that were to happen, I would be full on Jennifer Coolidge with like my yes. fucking Fredericks of Hollywood um, <laughs> feather gown. I mean, I'm just like... Such a cornball that I'm just like, there's no way. Here's the thing that fucking tripped me out is that, oh my God, this made me feel weird for like two entire days. What? What happened? So he was going around the house, like outside of the perimeter of the house, right? And so I was like, well, I actually do have to take out the garbage. So, you know, I went to the kitchen, grabbed the garbage, tied it up, and was coming out of the door as he was coming back around the front of the house. And 
as I was taking my first step down the stairs of my porch, he was like, oh, oh, let me get that. I'll get that for you, ma'am. Let me get that for you. And I was like, he's either the sweetest person to ever live or he thinks I'm like 95 years old. You are enfeebled. Break my hip (laughs) if I go down four stairs. And I'm just like, I am going to cry. When he leaves, I'm going to cry. Oh, Lord. Okay, there's something about this that I love so much because I can see your face and your reaction to this in real time. But also, feeble, but make it sexy. Be like, yes, you can carry this. And while you're at it, carry me up these steps. What's up? (laughs) Like, let's make a fucking day out of it, homie. You think I'm that old and can't do anything? Let's make a day out of it. You are now going to hang out with me. You're going to be my personal railing. Yes. I mean, I was like literally going back and forth for like hours going, he was just nice, right? He was just trying to be nice, that Southern gentleman shit. No, no, no. He thinks I'm old and can't carry my own garbage down the stairs. Like I was, I was like going back and forth and I'm like, I'm either old as shit or like oh my God. maybe doing me a little favor just to be a nice person. But anyway. I'm going to err on the side of he's probably a total sweetheart. He's probably very nice, but here's what has to happen. The only way to figure this out, you just got to talk to him. Be like, where are you from? What's your deal? What's going on? How are you? Like, are you? is this your route? Is this your route? Are you going to be here often? If so, meet my dog. Here's what's up. Just be nice. Just ask him some questions. You don't even have to be like creepy or like, you know, like me about it. <laughs> <laughs> you don't even have to be like old man at the club about it. You can just be like your normal, lovely, awesome self. And he's like, what's your deal? Where are you from? Yeah, I... I In three months, when he comes back to the house, which is an eternity for a crush, three months is an eternity for a crush. It is. I mean, you know me. I have a crush for a week, and then it's fucking Chernobyl. (laughs) Put that shit under 18 feet of cement. Put a little (laughs) dome over it. (laughs) I can't be carrying a crush out here in these streets for more than a week. God. And it's like the thing that he said right before he left, I swear to God, it was like this Douglas Sirk movie where he was like, well, ma'am, can I do anything else for you before I leave? And I'm like, oh my God. I'm like, here goes my Rock Hudson guy walking away. And I'm just Jane Wyman in the doorway being like, my kids are trying to ruin my life. I will never (laughs) date again. You have got to just talk to this dude. Just... Just for the sake of talking to a nice, attractive man. Yes. Nothing more than that. Just like, be again, like your normal, vivacious, wonderful, smart, brilliant self. Just talk to him and just be like, all right, I can talk to attractive young men. Yes. That's what COVID's done. He's going to be like the last ship that comes <laughs> to port for like 10 years. I mean, that's just the thing is that I'm like so out of practice with talking to people, let alone cute guys, that I'm like, oh God, yeah. this is a mess, but. No, I'm, I'm feeling you so hard. I am like a babbling brook all day when I go downstairs <laughs> and my contractors are so nice. They're the nicest guys. And I'm yeah. just like, hey, like I just, it's so obvious that I never talk to anyone in yeah. person anymore that yeah. it's just, it's, it's hard. It's hard to hear yourself, but that's why you practice. You got to practice, just talk, ask them some questions. Don't be me, be you. You're going to be great. <laughs> Well, thanks for the advice. Now, don't tell anybody that I told you that I have a crush on the bug guy, okay? I won't tell anybody, but you know I'm going to call every pest control company in Atlanta. (laughs) I'm going to be like, do you service this address? 
Listen to this episode real quick. Just right quick. This girl has a crush on you. She has a crush on you. Then I'll giggle and hang up and they'll be like, uh, ma'am, we have caller ID on all of our phones now. <laughs> <laughs> well, I have no true segue. No, me either. We can just tell the theme because the theme is so funny. I think oh, the theme yes. made us both laugh very hard. This came from the genius mind of Daniel Henderson, I have to say. <laughs> what is the theme? Here's the thing. I'm just going to say the theme. I don't have to preface it because the theme speaks for itself. Okay. Our theme this week is don't fill up on bread. (laughs) Sage (laughs) advice from someone older, usually. (laughs) Usually someone at your table is just smacking your hand. If you're in my family and you're younger, they're just going to smack your hand and be like, don't fill up on bread. Like they're not (laughs) taking you out to this restaurant to pay for you to fill up on Cheddar Bay biscuits, (laughs) even though that's all you want. (laughs) you're like how often do I come to Red Lobster Grandma I only come here with you once a year let me eat these damn biscuits and she's like no yeah but yeah don't fill up on bread we are we are focusing on a couple of films that revolve around food in some way right and thought that that would just be the, the the best theme for it right I mean listen it's we're we're about to have an Eden holiday if you know what I mean yeah. Like, it's going to be, you know, filled with breads, multiple <laughs> types of breads, tryptophan. Uh, we got you covered with pasta. Like, at the end of each of these films, I both wanted to travel so desperately and also wanted, like, a 10-course meal. Yeah, me too. This was, like, honestly the perfect pairing of films for both the season that we're in, but mm. also just, like... You know, and I think that this is what I love about movies that are about food is that it feels very cozy. And yes, I have a lot to say about your movie, obviously. <laughs> it was a family favorite. So it brought back all these like wonderful feelings and people in my family still do the Ian Holm impression. Oh my goodness. <laughs> yes, it's a thing that we say all the time. But I feel like we're teaching our nephews how to say this fucking guy, and I feel like that's bad. You gotta. You gotta. Yeah. Those kids are so adorable. If I hear one of them say this fucking guy, I'm (laughs) squeezing them to death. (laughs) That is adorable. Yes. Only teach your uh, children cuss words if it amuses you. Oh, completely. We're great at parenting. This is what our listeners need to know. It's exactly why we have no kids. (laughs) (laughs) I'm like, yeah, teach them more. Teach them more things. Yeah. You know, both my parents come from very strong food cultures. Mm. And so it was probably the biggest thing in our house, for better or for worse, I must say. But, like, food has always been a big thing in my family. And, you know, I I just love that both these films are, like— are, are, are movies that have people coming together because of food, right? Absolutely. And they're both also strangely and quite unintentionally about the relationships between, like the fraught, often fraught relationships between these two men. Yes. And, you know, people who are either brothers or who are best friends. And, you know, we're seeing a lot of masculinity play out in these films in a way that I don't think we usually see. A hundred percent. Maybe we should have called this theme movies about food, but not really. (laughs) It's kind of what's going on, right? Are chefs okay is our theme. (laughs) (laughs) Well, are you going first? I think you're going first. Yeah. 
I'm going Ooh. first. I'm going wow. first. And I'm going to jump right in because I cannot wait to talk about this film. It was released in 1996, directed by Campbell Scott and Stanley Tucci, written by Stanley Tucci and Joseph Tropiano. And the film is Big Night. They were two brothers who came to America bearing Italy's greatest gift. To eat good food is to be close to God. I'm never sure what that means, but it's true anyway. <laughs> now, I got to come right out of the gate and say that there has been a Stanley Tucci renaissance as of late. Yes. And a lot of people have come around to the Tucci as being a very hot commodity because he's been releasing cookbooks and, you know, doing, you know, releasing videos. I think he has a cooking show. And I just want to say that those of us in the 90s were well aware of the hotness of the Tooch. I mean, come on, people. Like, what do you think we were born yesterday? You might be new to his game, but this is not a new game for him. <laughs> do you remember when he was in the Levi's ad? Yes, I do. Yes. I absolutely do. Walking down the street with his little broad shoulders, his little tank top. Exactly. If you knew Stanley Tucci when he had hair, come join us. Welcome. We were that old, too. We're along for the ride that is Stanley Tucci from Levi's commercial to present date. Yes. Like, we're here for all of it. Hair, no hair. Gray, not gray. I'm here for it. It's so wonderful to me that he both co-wrote and co-directed this film. Yes. Um, and he co-wrote it with his cousin. Joseph Tropiano is his cousin. Mm -hmm. And Campbell Scott, who's George C. Scott's son, and who most of you will probably know from singles. Mm -hmm. uh, <laughs> he's co-directed this film with Stanley Tucci. And it's just such a fantastic, beautiful little movie that displays such a range of emotions that always gets me every time I watch it. Like, I tap into a different emotion. But the one constant emotion that I tap into is the wistfulness of the party. So I'll go into that in a moment. But first, let's talk about this incredible cast. Tony Shalhoub plays Primo, uh, who's the oldest brother and the chef of this restaurant. This restaurant called Paradise uh, in the Jersey Shore that is owned by Tony Shalhoub and Stanley Tucci, who plays Secondo, which is hilarious that they're both named after, like, meals. <laughs> In the Italian meal landscape. <laughs> First and second. <laughs> uh, we also have Mark Anthony plays uh, Cristiano, who's like their server and their third, you know, the kind of guy who helps them around the restaurant, does everything that they can't do. And he has a line in this film. Like, he might say five words in this movie. Look, his job is to sit around being cute as hell. I completely <laughs> forgot. I guess at the time that I saw this, when it first came out, I, I didn't know Mark Anthony was... Mark Anthony, like, I just thought he was a young guy in a movie. Yeah. He is so freaking cute with that hair. He's just the guy that's supposed to, like, hang out with the brothers, you know? Yes. And he's probably from the neighborhood or whatever. And I just was like, what a cutie! Ah! Ah, so adorable. Just a couple of words. Just true, <laughs> truly there to round things out, essentially. But just beautiful, beautiful, beautiful. So they have this restaurant called Paradise. It is down the street from another Italian restaurant called Pascal's. And Pascal's is doing big business, but Paradise is not. So the one-sentence synopsis of this film for me is, two brothers, both perfectionists in their own way, struggle to throw a party that will keep their failing restaurant afloat while Ash from Alien does everything he can to make that impossible. <laughs> so true. <laughs> <laughs> oh, 
Oh my God. So we've got this great cast. We've got this great setup. Um, Isabella Rossellini plays Pascal's wife. Um, Ian Holm plays Pascal. We've got a little cameo from a very young Liev Schreiber in here. Minnie Driver plays Phyllis, who's Secundo's girlfriend. Allison Janney makes an appearance. We love it. Just a beautiful appearance as uh, Primo's paramour. Like, he's just so into her and can't really find the words. Those scenes are always so adorable to me where he's just a little babbler. (laughs) He can't get the words out. Yes. But yeah, so the whole premise of this film is that they are down on their luck. It is a beautiful, well-appointed restaurant with hardly any guests. And they've borrowed money from the bank. They have loans due. You know, 60 bucks in the bank left kind of kind of situation. This movie is set in the late 50s. So it is kind of that point in time where part of the reason that Paradise Restaurant is not doing so well is because they're doing what they would call like traditional Italian food. And what's popular in the moment is like Americanized Italian food. And so Primo is like, I ain't doing that shit. <laughs> it's like, that is swine. Yeah. There's one point where he's yelling about Pascal's and he says, it's a rape. They're raping the cuisine. Yeah. <laughs> like he is so passionate about what he will not do to the food of his own nation and background. Yeah. Um, so that is part of the conflict between these two brothers is that Secundo really wants to expand. He wants to have a restaurant that caters to the clientele. And Primo is like, no, the food should be enough. He says that again in like another pivotal scene, like the food should be enough, but it's not. Uh, as we can tell from the opening scene, you've got customers who come in and they order the risotto and their first statement is like, it took too long to make. And what is this? Like, they don't even know what they're looking at. She's like, it says it had seafood in it. I don't see any scallops. So people are just not picking up what these brothers are putting down. So there's a lot of friction between the two of them. And the setup is basically that Secondo, he's been talking to Pascal behind Primo's back about possibly working together, like them working for Pascal's. And Primo has been talking to their uncle in Rome and saying, hey, if it doesn't work out here, maybe we go back to Rome Mm. and we do this together. So they're both kind of, again, they're trying really hard, but they're also trying to make a second, like a a plan B. And it's just not not taking off for them. So they decide one day, Secondo goes into Pascal's restaurant. It's fucking hopping. Pascal, we got to talk about it. Ian Holm is playing the most Italian guy who ever Italianed. (laughs) Just really chopping it up. Every single time he sees Stanley Tucci's character, he goes, this fucking guy. <laughs> he calls him this fucking guy. Um, he's, uh, a, he's a butt biter. Like, he's constantly biting butts. Like, his advice is you've got to bite your teeth into the ass of life and drag it to you. <laughs> like, he's so over the top. And so is this restaurant. It's like, they've got flambe. They've got espresso. There's a singer in the corner. He's got Isabella Rossellini looking hot as shit. Yes. Uh, he's just like... He's giving people what they want. This whole restaurant is a party. And so Pascal says to Secondo, look, I'm friends with Louis Prima, who's a very famous jazz musician. I'm going to have him come to your restaurant so that you can have the clientele and the attention that you deserve. That is where the premise of the Big Night part of Big Night comes in, uh, that they are going to basically have this huge party-style meal in the honor of Louis Prima, so that they can also get a lot of attention and um, get some some clientele for their restaurant. So Pascal's going to do them this favor. Mm-hmm. And 
all hell breaks loose. What happens next <laughs> is so fucking wild. You've got all these different little relationship things happening. Like Phyllis, Manny Driver's character, is upset because, you know, Secondo seems to not really want to take it to the, the relationship to the next level. Um, but he's also having an affair with Gabriella, who's Pascal's wife. Um, and he's just running around and trying to, like, make... He's trying to grift. Like, he's trying to do the thing of yeah. saving his relationship with his brother or protecting his relationship with his brother, saving the restaurant and trying to plan for the future. And he's just, nothing's quite working out for him. And these are guys that are also very, um, they're very like macho in their own way. And especially the Secondo character, like he kind of, it's not that he can't be talked to. He just doesn't like to admit that he's wrong because the way that, that Primo is a perfectionist about his food, Secondo is a perfectionist about his life. And he's a perfectionist about the front of the house stuff. Mm -hmm. So he doesn't really take too well to this insecurity about his future. And he's really scrambling this whole film to try to make up for it. Mm -hmm. But they make this meal. It is the most beautiful meal <laughs> you have ever seen on screen. And the prep and the setup of this meal is so intensely good. But the highlight, the star of this meal is a dish called timpano. Have you ever heard of timpano? Uh, yes, although we never made it. Okay, so it wasn't like a family dish. Yeah, and I think I could be wrong about this, but I feel like that's like a northern thing and mm. like the southern Italians have a different cuisine a lot of times, which is where my family's from. So, I never had it. It almost feels like a giant thing that they bake in the middle of a bunch of bread or like it's like a <laughs> pastry thing or something. I don't know. It was like very complicated looking when they were making it in the movie. Oh, I'm about to tell you what it is. And a, okay. my friend Kelly Sue has made timpano before. And when I got married, she gifted me a timpano bowl, like one of those metal bowls that you can make timpano in. And I haven't done it yet. But when my kitchen is done, I'm having a fucking party and we are going to eat timpano. So it's essentially this beautiful dough, like this kind of hand-rolled dough that is like four cups of flour, four eggs. It's just like huge, like a bunch of butter, olive oil. Uh, and then you layer that in a bowl and the filling of the timpano is an insane masterpiece. Like, I don't know who thought of this or how, hmm. but it's basically like four cups of salami, four cups of provolone cheese, 12 hard boiled eggs that are like shelled, four cups of small meatballs, seven cups of ragu sauce, three pounds of ziti. And in the movie, they hand roll the ziti. And it's, I love those little boards they use. Like I love any kind of little pasta board or, or thing to make the shapes and the lines in it. Yeah. Three pounds of baked ziti. And then just to top it all off and mix it all together, you've got like a cup of Pecorino Romano and six large eggs. Like it is huge. <laughs> it's a huge Huge meal. In the movie, they make it seem like it takes like two days to make, but it sincerely takes hours to make <laughs> and cook. Crazy. Like, yeah, it looks so intense. And I never, like I said, I never heard of it, but I mean, damn, it is a showstopper according to everything that you just said. And in the movie, it's like a, the big part of the movie. Yeah. Like the scene, once they get going in the party, the whole movie becomes about 
it's building towards this moment of showcasing the food. And you see these little moments of Primo cooking prior to that. And you're like, oh, it looks like it looks very good. In this scene, I mean, we're starting first with la zuppa, the, the soup. Yeah. And then you get to the primi. And the primi is like, everyone's blown away by pesto. That's how like much we take for granted now in terms of our food life. Like, people are like, pesto, what? Yeah. And he's explaining what lasagna is to Anne at one point. And she, he's like, they have this meal called lasagna bolognese from this part of Italy. And you're like, oh, yeah, like, things had to be brought over here. <laughs> like, we didn't just always know how to make and eat this stuff. Yeah. Um, but this meal is just so intensely good. But the crowd is even better. So at one point... Secundo goes to test drive a Cadillac. It's like his dream car. Campbell Scott plays the Cadillac salesman and he's invited. It's like everyone they cross paths with that day is invited to come to this party. And they're waiting for Louis Prima for hours. And in the meantime, everyone is just drinking. So everyone at this party is rip shit. Mm. <laughs> like they are so fucking drunk and they're dancing and laughing and having a good, they're playing games, they're having a good time. The atmosphere of this party is so intensely fun. It just translates in a way that I haven't seen on screen. I think like 200 cigarettes kind of gave me that feeling when I watched it, but there are very few movies that show party scenes that actually make me feel like I want to go to a party. This is definitely one of them. Yeah, it's so fun. The whole era that it's set in is so cute because it's like everybody has their cute little going out outfits on. So they have like their dresses and all the guys are in suits. And, you know, it's like the Rosemary Clooney songs playing and they're all just kind of like dancing and getting drunk. And it is so, so fun to watch. Oh, they're doing like a conga line around the table. And then finally Secundo's like, because everyone's like whispering like, oh my God, Primo's cooking. Like, it's almost like they forgot that there was going to be food. Yeah. And then finally, Secundo's like, okay, let's eat. And everyone is fucking jazz and they sit down. They bring out like seven fucking courses. Yeah. <laughs> One of them, like before the dessert, is a full-ass suckling pig. Like that is how big this meal is. And everyone, I mean, this is a meal that wrecks people's lives. There's a woman <laughs> crying because she's like, my mother was such a terrible cook. Like, this is a <laughs> life-ruining meal. <laughs> yeah. It's totally the traditional, like, Italian courses where you get pasta mm -hmm. and then a meat dish, usually. Yes. So it's like, the pasta isn't the main course. The pasta is like an appetizer, essentially. Yeah. And then you move on to an entire meat course. And then you move on to, like, a vegetable course. So it's like, yeah, by the end of it, they're all, like, laying across the table <laughs> in pain from eating so much. It's amazing. And it's, like, 3 a.m. Yeah. People have just, like, they have had the best night of their lives. But in the midst of this incredible night that all their guests are having... Secondo and, and Primo are having kind of a, they're unraveling a little bit. And Secondo is unraveling in his personal life um, mm -hmm. once Phyllis catches on to the fact that he's having an affair with Gabriella. And there's this really weird but kind of cool scene where she runs down to the shore and jumps in the water and he chases after her. And you see her kind of swimming at night in the ocean. And she gets out of the water and she looks like so confident and she's in her fucking 50s underwear and he's like trying to talk to her and she just turns around and says, no, I'm not here anymore. And I'm like, that is 
fire. Yeah. <laughs> that is some fire shit to say to someone instead of like, I think we should break up. It's like, nope, I'm not here anymore. I love it. And this beach scene then becomes more about these two brothers as they realize that something horrible has been afoot this whole evening and that they've essentially been tricked. Um, And so they end up fighting about everything, everything everything that has never been said between them. And it's emotional and it's so heart-wrenching. And it's this really, again, like this very interesting and cool study of masculinity somehow, but it's also just like a fucking great movie, like great film scene and the waves are crashing and they're just wailing and thrashing. It's just, it's a beautiful scene that precedes what to me is one of the best endings I've ever seen in a film. And it's completely silent, the ending. Mm -hmm. Um, And that I will not ruin because it's fucking beautiful and deserves to be watched with fresh eyes. But it's just this really intensely cathartic film that revolves around food. It involves these notions of family, these notions of self, and um, just kind of the people who are striving for the American dream and who are very aware of meritocracy. But it's at a time in our country's history where people still thought they could get it. Like, you know, there's a scene with Secondo talking to Pascal and he's like, you know, you work hard in Italy, you don't know what's going to happen, but you work hard here and you just move on up the ladder, essentially. So he's committed to moving up the ladder without realizing that there's a lot more that needs to happen for an immigrant, especially, to be able to reach that level of lifestyle that he wants. I absolutely love this movie. I think that it was um, a grand jury prize selection at the Sundance Film Festival. I think Stanley Tucci won a a New York Film Critics Circle Award uh, for Best New Director. Uh, There were some, you know, Independent Spirit Awards for the screenplay. It was a very well-received movie, but I think that the reason I come back to it time and time again is just the feeling. (laughs) Like, there's such an emotional arc in this film that I connect to every time I watch it. And I just, I love it. Yeah, I got to tell you, this is a huge movie for my family. Like we, I remember when this movie came out, we, of course we didn't see it in the movie theater. We saw it when it was on VHS. (laughs) And it was, it really hits home, I think, for my father because essentially my father immigrated to America with his brother around the same time that this movie takes place. Mm. And I think that it just really, like, hit a note for him. And I remember when we saw the movie as a family, it was just, like, the thing that he was like, oh, my God, I can't believe they kind of, like, nailed the experience. Because I think this movie is about immigration, too, as much as it is about, you know— the relationship between the brothers in America, but it's also about this idea of immigrants coming here and Americanizing or Mm non-Americanizing. And that's like a big issue amongst immigrants is when you come to America, do you, you know, adopt all the American stuff? Do you get into the American music and the culture? And how much of your old culture do you leave behind for this new culture? And I think my father, you know, has talked about that within his own life. And it feels like Primo is the guy that wants to stay Italian. And he's very much insistent upon, like, I'm going to take what I know from Italy and bring it here. And I'm not going to change myself. And I'm not going to change anything. It's like, he wants to, like, hang out with the uncle in the barbershop and eat his own food. And he doesn't really want to, like 
you know, he doesn't want a hot dog or like, you know, he thinks that Pascal is like a monster because Pascal, you know, is Americanized for the most part. And that is reflected in his restaurant, right? But then also Secundo's like also a little bit of a businessman himself. Mm -hmm. And he, you know, has an American girlfriend and he wants to like get a Cadillac. And, you know, he's just sort of like... He wants full assimilation, right? Like... Sure, and he wants he wants all of the like tokens of American success. He wants the nice car, he wants the beautiful American girlfriend, and he wants this successful business. So it's this whole like thing where they they kind of butt heads about that. And I think that that was a lot of my dad's experience too, just within his own family that immigrated here. Like, you know, who wanted to really jump in and be part of the American culture and who was sort of not willing to do it as much. Right. And um, that's just so interesting to me. And also like, I got to tell you, I think Tony Shalhoub, for not being an Italian guy, okay, did an amazing job at being an Italian guy. I could not agree more. He is the ultimate confuser in so many ways. Yeah. How many ethnicities can and has Tony Shalhoub played on screen? He's like the, just your, your blank slate ethnic guy. <laughs> <laughs> I, at times, I even thought to myself, Wow, he speaks better Italian than Stanley Tucci, who is actually Italian. Like, I was like, damn, that is fucking talent. It is true. There are some scenes in this film that I'm like, who was the vocal coach? Like, I kept, I was thinking deep about, like, who is involved in this film? Because presentation was impeccable. Yeah. Impeccable. This brings back so many great feelings and... Like I said, reminds me so much of my family. Like, we, you know, to this day, we go around, you know, obviously doing the Ian Holm impression. It really, like, captures the spirit of having meals with Italian people. And um, yes. I really miss that as far as, you know, I don't see my family as much as I want to. But also, like, my grandparents died and they were a yeah. big part of that. You know, it's just that thing of, like, oh, I just miss having big meals with my family. And I just, this movie uh. is so special. It's so perfect for the theme. It is. I'm so glad you picked it. Thank you. As you were talking, I just remembered that my my former mother-in-law was uh, first-generation Italian. And one year for her birthday, she had this little recipe box with all of her mother's recipes written down in it. And it was like, you know, kind of the the recipes that were like, yeah, put a little bit of this in. Yeah. <laughs> like they weren't ever like really formalized recipes. But I took all of the recipes and I scanned them all and I made them into like a hardcover book for her. Oh, cute. Because I thought like as time goes on, those those cards fade, you know, like the writing becomes a lot. And I'm like, you will want to keep these one day. And her face, like it was, I've never given a gift to someone that visibly meant so much to them. And she's like, no, you don't understand. Like, I can give this book to my granddaughter. I can get, like, it was just really special because she is someone who, like, our relationship, we really connected a lot over food and her teaching me how to make pasta and teaching me about, you know, this, the Christmas meal, which is the seven fishes and the whole thing. Like, we really connected over food. And I just, I think it's just a general theme of my life that anyone who's constantly telling me to eat more is my kind of people. Yeah. And I just love that, like, in Italy and with the Italian people in my life, that connection to family through food is just something that I think is really, really special. So I love that that it means so much to your family. Yeah, it's a good film in that way where you're like, oh, this is like really indicative of Italian families and of siblings and, you know, their uncle. The, guy, the, the uncle is great. Like, oh. I didn't read much about him. 
But I was like, oh, he's such a perfect guy, the guy that's like kind of coming in and like, you know, sort of being a surrogate dad and sorting out everybody's <laughs> lives. And, you know, I don't know. It, it's it's such a great movie. I'm so glad you picked it. Well, what about your film? Well, we know what's interesting about my film, too, is that this is also a movie about art versus business in a lot of ways. <laughs> yes. So there's always other inroads that we find out as we're watching the films, but I'm excited to talk about this one. My movie for the theme, Don't Fill Up on Bread, is a movie from 2010. It was directed by Michael Winterbottom, and it's called The Trip. You're not doing it the way he speaks. You're not doing it with the kind of... And you don't do the broken voice when he gets very emotional. When he gets very emotional indeed. She was only 16 years old. She was only 16. You're only supposed to blow the bloody doors off. Okay, besides Danielle, I suspect we have some UK comedy fans amongst our listenership. Yes, and some people from the actual UK who listen to our show. Exactly. So, I mean, this is a a big part of the reason why I picked this. Now, maybe some of you are thinking, okay, wasn't this a TV series? And yes, it was. However, it was also edited into and released as a film, and it had a film festival premiere and everything, so it counts, okay? (laughs) Don't get into my DMs about this. And there's also been three additional series after this, which is The Trip to Italy, The Trip to Spain, and The Trip to Greece. Yes. And I think that they were also released as films, right? Mm Mm-hmm. They were all released as films. They were like six-episode series that were cut together to be these beautiful films. So it counts. (laughs) Don't get crazy, people. So I'm sure I don't have to say much about Steve Coogan and Rob Ryden, They're the stars of the trip. I mean, they're performers and comics and have worked together many times. Everybody, I'm sure, watched Tristan Shandy, right? We all know this. Mm -hmm. You know, Steve Coogan has been in a ton of movies, and he's probably best known as Alan Partridge, which is the character that he co-created with Armando Iannucci. And Rob Ryden is a Welsh comic. He was in Gavin and Stacey, which was a much beloved sitcom. Mm-hmm. He hosts a lot of TV shows on the BBC, including Would I Lie to You, which is a fucking great show. And are they, aren't they remaking that in America or have they? Shut your mouth. I think they no. are. I, I will not hear it. <laughs> I, I will not hear it. I will block it out. Every attempt to remake something British on American TV is a spectacular failure, and I wish we would cut the shit. Yes. I swear to God it's going to be remade. And I feel like it's going to be on, like, the CW or something like that. Jesus Christ. Yes. Would I lie to you to be remade in America? Yes. This was from March 2021. They're going to remake it. My heart is breaking. I can't hear this. Yes. Listen, we all know at this point that the Brits have the best TV shows in the world and then they get made in America and they're worse. So true pieces of shit. True. (laughs) Like, I don't even know how I'm like, when I watch the remakes, I'm like, I didn't know you could make that move to make the show so much worse. It it was a perfect, it was handed to you on a golden platter. And then we're like, how about we just take a big steaming dump on it and do that instead? 
Yeah, I, listen, I'm going to say this. I watched all of the UK office, watched very little of the US office to this day. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. maybe I'm still bitter about it. I'm just going to, I'm going <laughs> to, that's just the hill that I'm going to die on. I'm, I'm that asshole that likes the UK office better than the US. I'm sorry. I just am. I don't think you have to apologize. I don't think you have to apologize. I will say this and lose 9,000 friends at once. The U.S. office is some basic bitch shit. (laughs) And you can come in my DMs and we can fight about it for a week straight. I said it and I meant it. We're keeping this in because I tend to believe the same thing, okay? Like, liking the UK office better than the US is my personality trait, okay? I'm just saying. (laughs) I'm going to insist that people catch up on the UK, the original Would I Lie to You on YouTube or some other way to watch it before they ruin it in the US. And any episode (laughs) with Guz Khan, James Acaster, Greg Davies, or... um, Bob Mortimer are the ones you want to start with. Bob Mortimer. Love Bob Mortimer. Oh my God. We could go down this hole for hours. Fuck it. This could be a separate episode. Um, <laughs> which is what I, this is what I feared when I, when I was like, let's do the trip. Cause I was like, we can sit here and talk about UK comedy like all fucking day. We'll do a bonus app. We'll do a bonus app. We're going to do a bonus app for sure. But look, in the trip, Essentially, it was Steve Coogan and Rob Brydon essentially doing these like exaggerated versions of themselves. And it's this kind of improvised thing. And the TV series is great. There's a lot of stuff, obviously, in the series that didn't make it into the movie. But for the purposes of this podcast, we're going to talk about the movie. Okay. Don't get in my DMs. (laughs) So one sentence synopsis of the trip is this. Two professional comedians slash frenemies travel the north of England, eat at fine dining establishments, drive each other insane with nonstop impressions of famous actors and male insecurity. And honestly, maybe we really should have called this theme movies about food, but not really. (laughs) So the setup of the trip is that Steve, you know, just gets this writing assignment from The Observer to go on this, like, fancy restaurant tour of Northern England for a week, okay? And initially, he was supposed to bring his girlfriend, Misha, but it's revealed that they're kind of on shaky ground and are maybe taking a break. So instead, he calls up his colleague, Rob. And like I said, Steve and Rob are essentially the actual guys, but just exaggerated, right? So... In the trip, Steve is kind of the more successful of the two, like, career-wise, but he's also unhappier, right? Yes. Besides the fact that he's on a break with his girlfriend, he just is kind of constantly bummed about the way his career's going. He thinks of himself as an artist, I think, and he wants to work with auteurs. He keeps (laughs) saying the word auteurs, which cracks me the fuck up. Like, he wants to be in these, like, art house movies made yes. by, like, Paul Thomas Anderson and the Coen brothers and shit. Like, he's just so obsessed with being, like, an artist. <laughs> Whatever. <laughs> and he's always, like, throughout the entire movie, he's just, like, on the phone with his staff and his American agent. And he's just, like, trying to get these jobs. And there is, like, a possibility that he might get this series in America, which would require him to maybe stay in America for seven years. but. 
as a person, Steve is kind of like not grown up very much. Like he's still having one night stands. He's like dating models, smoking pot. And he's just kind of like generally uneasy with this idea that he's like 43 years old and he's not this like young, cool guy anymore, right? Yeah. But Rob, on the other hand, I think he's sort of seen as this like corny TV guy. Mm-hmm. Like, He's not an artist at all, and he's totally <laughs> content with that. Like, he's just like, listen, I'm just going to keep doing the same impressions that made me famous over and over again. I'm the guy that your grandparents know from the television, and I'm totally chill with that. He's like, I will do a cornflakes commercial, no problem. Yes. <laughs> like- He's like, I'm just going to keep doing Hugh Grant until until I can no longer make a buck from it. And Ronnie Corbett. Yes. <laughs> Which is like the most random fucking impression to do in the yeah. year of our Lord 2021. <laughs> yeah. But here's the thing about Rob. He's got a very stable home life. He's got this mm-hmm. great wife and he's got a new baby. And in general, I think he's sort of much more settled into himself yes. than Steve is, right? Absolutely. Steve is very insecure. Oh, completely insecure and really puts that on display. This character of Steve Coogan, I should say, like really right, right. puts that on display that he doesn't hide it and he kind of can't hide it, that he's resentful of Rob in so many ways, but also would not trade his career with Rob's for a second. It's a real exactly. point of friction for him. Yeah, and that that's the crux of their relationship in the trip. And it's kind of like in your movie where you got like the guy that just wants to stay authentic and wants to be the artist. And then there's the businessman, right? The mm-hmm. other guy that's like, well, I'm, I'm cool with selling out um, because ultimately who gives a shit? But look, I've never been to England. I'm just going to admit that right now. It's very sad. I very much want to, hopefully very soon. Oh, we're, we have to go. We have to go. But it's a big reason why I love the trip. I mean, it's just that the places that they're going to in this movie and just like the Northern England, the landscape is so beautiful and pastoral and quaint. And, you know, they're driving around these like very scenic, beautiful places and they're stopping each night to eat at these incredible restaurants and staying at these like very cozy, like bed and breakfast type places. And they're you know, going out during the day in their puffer jackets and they're taking walks, you know, on the moors and stuff. I mean, it's just like (laughs) right now in this like season that we're in, it's perfect to watch. It's like this seasonally appropriate setting, Uh, right? Just a crisp and beautiful movie for for all of its rainy moodiness. It just fits in to this winter landscape we're, we're embarking on, especially now that we're back on the East Coast. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And listen, so they're driving through these beautiful places and also driving each other fucking nuts for different reasons, right? Rob is basically doing nonstop impressions of famous actors the entire time, which drives Steve insane. But then he tries to join in and he can he can totally do it too. This is what is hilarious about their interactions. Like, yeah. Steve can do impressions as well. He just thinks it's a lower art form. Sure, exactly. That's, that's exactly right. But at the same time, 
Steve is self-obsessed and a little immature and obviously insecure. And I think that drives Rob a little insane. Like, he can kind of pick up on that. Yes. You know, he picks up on the fact that he picks him up in a Range Rover and he's like, "What? why do you drive a Range Rover, dude? Like, you know. And uh, Steve makes some, like, bullshit excuse. You know, like, the bullshit, like, I have a fancy car and I can't, like, justify it, but I'll try type of thing. I also, I love when they're they're sitting down to their first meal and, and Steve is like, you know, I'm from the North. And Rob's like, you're from Manchester. Like, we're not in Manchester. <laughs> he's like, he's like, oh yeah, I could show my girlfriend around. You know, I, I booked this this trip so I could show my girlfriend around the North. And Rob says, yeah, you could take her around and show her the gun crime sites. Like, he's just constantly trying to like bring <laughs> Steve down a level to like yes. recognize where he is actually from and who he actually is. Yeah, but this is ultimately the thing. Like, they're back and forth, which again, I said, is mostly improvised. I mean, this is the reason why we come to these series and movies time and time again. I mean, just this idea that they figure out the nuance of the characters or actors that they're doing impressions of is so fucking funny to me. Like, I think everybody at this point knows the famous scene where they're fighting over who does the better Michael Caine impression, right? Yes. Uh, that's online. I think I watch it every, every year. It's like a tradition, if not multiple times a year. And they do it. They do these Michael Caine impressions as he's aging. So they do like the young guy and then they move it into the old and it's so brilliant. It's so good. And then the, the James Bond shit, like when they do the James Bond impressions, it's so funny. Also, Rob, Rob is the kind of guy who will do impressions for himself. So like when Steve yes. is not even around, like he's going to book a room or look at the the suite and Rob's just still doing the impressions by himself. It's fucking hilarious. Yeah. And he does the impressions to his wife, you know, like <laughs> as they're like having phone sex and shit. And it's just like, you can just tell this is his calling and he does it 24 <laughs> hours a day. But, you know, listen, they're driving around doing impressions. They're trying to one up each other, but there are moments where, they do seem to enjoy each other's company. Like, and that is like ultimately heartwarming. Like when they're singing. Yes. Wuthering Heights and the oh winner takes it all. Like. <laughs> oh, when they sing winner, winner takes it all. It's so heartbreaking for so many. It's also hilarious. It's just such a weird emotional beat of the film. But yeah. oh, because you're watching these guys try to do something which is very rare to see on film or TV, which is they're being very honest about how uncomfortable they are with aging. Yes. And, you know, they're they're looking at these beats and these songs and these kind of cultural markers of who they were as young men to kind of inform who they are becoming as older men. And, you know, they're doing it in a way that feels boyish in some ways. Like, they're still able to tap into that. But they have so much responsibility and so much, you know, so much intensity going on in their lives um, that this is definitely a break. It's a trip. It's a job, but it's a break. And, you know, it's kind of a a light holiday (laughs) for them, even though they're working, where they're really working through some shit together. And I love it. I absolutely love it. I think there's a scene in one of the one of the car scenes after like the second or third meal where they they kind of are finding the beat of um, uh, Steve Coogan says like why do why do people always leave at daybreak and they're like we leave at dawn <laughs> like we ride at daybreak eight thirty for nine ish or like like they're kind of going on yeah and on. yeah no that's my favorite part the gentleman to bed when they oh slip into that Billy God. Connolly impression I. <laughs> I was on the floor. Like, I've seen this, like, multiple times, but, like, 
when I saw it again recently, I was like that Billy Connolly thing where <laughs> Steve Coogan like does the thing where he does like his face almost. Yes. And I'm like, so perfect. Oh, it's beautiful. And the food, the food is, oh God. Yeah. Just watching them stop at all these restaurants in the Lake District. Jesus. Right. Well, and that's the thing is that like the food is obviously like the thing that's uniting them in a way. And you get this sort of sensation when you're watching the movie that you're like, these are guys that used to work together. They sort of have different lives now. Mm -hmm. But now this like food trip is what's getting them to hang out a little bit. And, you know, in that way where it's the reality of kind of like having trips or taking trips or road trips with old friends. Like when you just sort of like, you drive each other fucking insane with your little bullshit, but then you just have these moments where you're like reconnect and you have like genuine fun and silliness. And so it's this kind of like bittersweet thing where you're like, you know, you can tell that they're annoyed with each other at a lot of points, but then they're also like different people and they're realizing that they're different people and they're realizing Mm -hmm. that they're getting older. And there's this like entire scene where they're at a a graveyard and they're kind of like, it's this like weird moment of like Steve is giving a fake eulogy at Rob's fake funeral. And you're just sort of like, Uh, I mean, to me, it's, it's kind of intense because you're like, yes, you know, what does this guy really think of me? You know? And he's joking, but is he joking? You know? Absolutely. And it's it's that along with the the daybreak scene that where they devolve into Billy Connolly. Yeah. I think that's one of my favorite scenes of the movie because you're watching Rob kind of want to give his input and guide Steve in what to say. But then they're having like Steve is really revealing a lot about his feelings about Rob's career and trajectory in this fake eulogy. Right. And so he's revealing a lot about himself in this discussion of his friend in this fake eulogy in front of this beautiful old priory. But he, it, it is very intense. It's very intense because you see him kind of wrestling with and, and kind of reckoning with a lot of the the decisions that he's made in his life and career. Yeah. Um, and really expressing that through how he feels about Rob. So it's it's just, it's a bracing scene to say the least. Yeah, and it's, it's you know, the... The food portion of it is really interesting, too, because they get together for these meals. And and the movie does this thing where it it shows um, kind of like a behind the scenes. They'll show clips of, like, the chefs in the kitchen preparing their meal. Yes. And it's this kind of, like, moment where you're like, oh, here are these people that are working very hard to, like, create this, like, art for these two guys. And it's it's sort of like it brings you back to the sense that you're like, oh, the food is actually bringing them together. Mm -hmm. It's almost like you think, oh yeah, we forgot that food is like a uniter. Yeah. Right. And food is what brings people together. And you take these like two guys who are like, listen, (laughs) one of the biggest things that I thought about when I was watching this again was I was like, I generally think that hanging out with a bunch of professional comedians is never the move. Just saying. For a lot of reasons. Oh, I would truly (laughs) rather chew tinfoil than hang out with more than one comedian at a time. (laughs) Many of my friends are comedians. Some of them might be listening to this, and I mean it. (laughs) One of you at a time. Yeah. I have a lot of comedian friends, too, as you know. And I'm just sort of like, I love you, but it just better be me and you. If you bring another (laughs) two or three of you around, I am piecing the fuck out. 
But it is that thing where you're like, there's a competition that exists, right? Because the fact that they're both professional comics and they've worked together, but then they've lived such sort of different lives, but the food is what is going to make them hang out and make them sort of process their thoughts and feelings about aging and death and marriage and children. And it's the male sort of insecurity shit that we talked about earlier. It's like they have to have a reckoning with it because of the food. Yeah. It's like, it just reminds you of like how powerful food is for people's lives. And so I don't know if I'm reading too much into that, but that's kind of how I felt. So I just love, it's like, oh, here's the construction of the meals to kind of remind you of that. But honestly, like this entire series is beloved. I mean, a lot of my friends love these trip series and films and Mm -hmm. Steve Coog and Rob Ryden are so fucking funny in it. And I mean, I love when something is like really thought provoking and also hilarious and you know and the way that they kind of roll out too is so gorgeous it's not like this rapid fire really distracting thing it's just very like it's a slow burn and it's very like thoughtful and meditative but also like billy Connolly impressions it's it's so good completely i love i love and own all four of these films. Yeah. They are my go-to Sunday comfort films from like most of the winter and most of the year, like that part of the year. I particularly love when they're going through, you know, all the food scenes, just their, their improvised comments on what they're eating and how they're trying to be respectful. And you can tell they really do enjoy a lot of the food, but then they'll say something like, you know, they get this drink that looks like a bunch of grass cuttings (laughs) and they're like, this tastes like a childhood garden or, you know, like there's this one point in, there's this one point in the second meal where this guy drops his plate and it looks like these two little ceramic sacks that are like stuffed with greens. And the look on Steve Coogan's face makes me fall off the chair every time. He's just like, what the fuck are you doing right now? Like they're just so, they're trying to be these like very posh, sophisticated dudes who have this palate but they cannot help but be who they are. Yes. And I think that that is also something that um, that I just love about this movie is that they're they're open to these new experiences. They're open to this experience of food and how food has evolved to be its own connector yeah. um, based on how and what you're eating. Like, are you eating these very intricate gastro-focused meals or are you eating like a hot dog yeah. or something? <laughs> like the food itself has become a great connector. Um, but I just, I love watching them eat. It's just very, very entertaining. Well, and that's the other thing too, is that, I mean, listen, I'm not actually sure about the timeline of when like food became like a new thing for people again. Because mm. uh, we go through periods where... No one gives a fuck about food, and then everybody gives a fuck about food, right? <laughs> like in the in the eighties when I was growing up, nobody gave a fuck about nobody food. Gave like, a fuck. but then it's like I think people of our generation, when we started getting older, I think between Anthony Bourdain and the Trip movies, I feel like our generation became obsessed with food. And you know what? Like, it is a genius fucking thing to be like, you know what? 
I'm a professional comedian and I'm on TV, but I'm also like really into food. And why not do a TV series where I have to eat at fancy <laughs> restaurants? Like I kept thinking that the entire time going like, yeah, that's a good excuse. How do we get Danielle and I on that trip? Like, we'll just like start our own TV show yes. where we just get to eat it everywhere we wa- ever wanted to eat. This is like the central post of most of my jealousy is people who have ideas that allow them to do fun shit that other people pay for. Yes. <laughs> like that is the basis of any jealousy that I have left in my body. That is genuinely where it comes from. Like, oh, you got to go to a cool place or do a cool thing on somebody else's dime. And I have never cracked that code. And also too, like, where the fuck are my travel writer friends that invite me to go places with them? I'm like, Thank you. I don't know anybody who asked me to go and do work shit with them involving fancy hotels, delicious restaurants, or like exotic locales. I'm pissed. No, because all these dummies are usually bringing their fucking partners. <laughs> yes, Ditch your partner and bring Millie. Bring me. Bring a friend. Have an actual good time. Get away from your fucking life for a minute. Take a break. (laughs) Take a break from that other dummy that you live with and hang out with us. We are great and entertaining. We love food. I don't have a Pacino impression. Although I think once we tried to do the Pacino impression (laughs) and we cut it. Remember that? (laughs) When we did um, Insomnia. I feel like there is probably like 10 minutes of tape in a vault where you and I were doing Pacino impressions and we got them. Oh, God. That will only be released on our deathbed after both of us have died. Yes. We both have to die for that tape to come out. Oh, Lord. Oh, God. That was so funny when we tried to do that. Oh, my God. I also, like, I'm a person who I don't think I have a refined palate. You know, I enjoy home cooking. I enjoy cooking. I enjoy intricate meals. I enjoy great ingredients. But I'm, if you put, like, a tiny ceramic sack full of spring greens in front of me, I'm mad. Like, I want a full-ass meat, like, hearty meal. (laughs) And I remember um, when I was was living in England during my, my semester abroad, and I would go into London and hang out with Sarah Brown a lot. Yeah. And one of the last nights I was there, I had just got, this is so fucking, this is a bonkers story, but I'd gotten a small settlement from a car accident that I'd had three or four years prior. Mm. Uh, and I got it while I was away at school. And so I thought, well, for our last night here, like for my last night in England, I want to go out with my friends. So I took Sarah my then boyfriend who became my husband, then my ex-husband, <laughs> and Sarah's then boyfriend and now husband, we went out to one of Gordon Ramsay's restaurants. And it was like this incredibly rich and beautiful meal. Like everything was dripping in this sauce. And like we had poached pears for dessert. Like it was just this rich meal. And we said our goodbyes. And almost as soon as I started walking away, I already felt like I had to shit my pants. <laughs> and there was like, a 30-minute train ride ahead of me. (laughs) Oops. But I actually drew a little stick figure animation about the experience of, like, trying to find a bathroom at night in the fucking tube and trying to then get back to Reading without shitting my pants. Oh, my God. I truly don't think I have the constitution for these gastro meals that are like incredibly intense with rich flavors and use things like, you know, quail eggs and fucking ducks prayers and fucking (laughs) the wishes of a goat. Like, I'm just not that one. (laughs) I can't eat the wishes of a goat and keep it down. (laughs) 
Yeah, that's why you got to bring that Imodium AD when you travel. That's like Ooh. the one thing that I learned from any Anthony Bourdain book was that you bring Imodium AD. Actually, there's two things. Imodium AD and cigarettes. And really? Yeah. Cigarettes is, well, not for digestion, but cigarettes are a way to be able to socialize in foreign countries. Like, yeah. it's like a good, and I have to say, it is absolutely 100 fucking percent true because that's real. When I traveled to the Philippines and I did not speak a lick of Tagalog, it was the only way that me and my cousins could have time together was that we just had a beer and smoked cigarettes. So that's, you know, what I learned from Anthony Bourdain. God rest his soul. Well, we are going to, we're going to hit up the duty free. We're going to go to England and we're going to take a trip through the Lake District and fucking smoke and eat our way through the moors, like singing Wuthering Heights, playing Joy Division and just having our own little trip and doing impressions of... We, I don't think we're, we'll do impressions. We'll probably just talk a lot of shit. Yes. I will be the Rob Brydon. I will happily be the Rob Brydon who just takes a crack at doing, um, you know, Arnold Schwarzenegger once in a while. <laughs> and then you'll just, like, want to throw me out the fucking window. But... I truly can't wait. I truly can't wait. <laughs> Listen, if you want to give us opportunities to do things for free, that involve fancy shit, why don't you email us at I saw what you did pod at gmail.com. We'll take it. And look, we will take this show on the actual road. Like, we will take this show on the road and we'll document it. Yes. Go ahead and follow us on our socials. We are at I saw pod on Twitter and Instagram. That's right. And um, also, if you want merch, it's there for you. It's at the exactly right shop at exactlyrightmedia.com. And we have so many bonus episodes now up at Stitcher Premium that it would be a true sadness for you to miss them. I think that there are things that we will reference in the show that have their origin story in these premium episodes where we read your emails to you. So please, by all means, subscribe and you can use the promo code SAW for a free month. That's right. Now listen, we don't have a show next week, but... For the next episode, we got a couple of movies. So, Danielle, why don't you tell them what the movies are? Oh, they are a couple of bangers. And if you are a longtime listener of the show, you'll know exactly where we're headed with this. (laughs) Our movies for next week are Point Break from 1991 and Point Break from 2015. (laughs) (laughs) What is the theme? Can you imagine? (laughs) And if you know the theme, tell us. If you agree, (laughs) if you agree with the premise of the theme, (laughs) I love the thought experiment of what's going to happen in two weeks. We are just, we are rocketing towards the end of this year. Yes. And I am just excited that we're going to have some, some fun episodes coming up for you. Um, But we are going to take a break next week and come back and, uh, and hear the ongoing story of, of how we can help Millie and her, her pest control person fall deeper in love. Well, I'm not going to say it's going to be a mute cute, but hopefully he doesn't think I'm 90. That's all I care about is that I'm forever young, baby. (laughs) What do you call it? It's not a meet cute, but what do you call it when like one of your best friends flies down to your city and like forces an interaction between two people? (laughs) Is it a beat cute? (laughs) It's not a meet cute. It's a beat cute. Yes, it's a horror film starring Daniel <laughs> Henderson. <laughs> well, it's, 
Until next time, friends, keep those ideas rolling in. Yes. See you soon. This has been an Exactly Right production. Our producer is Alexis Amorosi. Our engineer is Annalise Nelson. Our theme song is by Tom Bryfogel. Artwork by Garrett Ross. Our executive producers are Georgia Hardstart, Karen Kilgariff, and Danielle Kramer. Follow us on Instagram and Twitter at IsawPod. Email us at IsawWhatYouDidPod at Gmail. And please don't forget to listen, subscribe, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. 